Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, page 808 in the Bibles in the pew in front of you. We've taken a departure from our study of the minor prophets to look at the hymns of Christmas, the biblical hymns of Christmas. We looked at Isaiah 9. We've looked at uh, the cry of the bereft mothers in, um, in the gospel story of, of uh, Herod when he took out his vengeance on the little boys, two years old and under in Bethlehem. And this week we're looking at Mary's song, <clears throat> Mary, the mother of Jesus, the maiden, the young girl betrothed to Joseph. A little bit of background. Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth from the standpoint of Joseph, from Joseph's perspective. Joseph was a descendant of David and uh, came through the kingly line. And uh, though it was a cursed line. And uh, then uh, Luke is the story of the birth of Jesus from Mary's perspective. She's also a descendant of of David, but not through the line that was cursed through Jeconiah, but rather through Nathan, the prophet, both of them descendants of David. Joseph hears the news that his, his uh, betrothed is pregnant. Now, uh, he was, they were engaged, but they were as good as married in that culture, and no one was allowed to be unfaithful and still be married. A certain interpretation of God's law was that if either one was unfaithful, they would disqualify themselves from marriage. They couldn't go forward with it. So Joseph, when he learns that Mary is pregnant and he knows he's not the father, he didn't really ask any questions. Uh, he, he loves Mary so compassionately, he designs to to divorce her quietly. He's going to preserve her honor. Now, he could have taken revenge. He could have, like I'm sure many did, put her on display. This woman uh, betrayed me, but he was going to, because he loved her so much, he was going to break the engagement quietly. But the angel interceded and told him, go ahead and marry her. And he bravely married her, though he knew the explanation that the one born of her was not from man, but of God. But He married her nonetheless. Mary, on the other hand, when she gets the news that she's pregnant and expecting no one less than the Son of God, has no questions. She just explodes with joy. She sings this hymn known in Latin as Magnificat, which magnify the Lord with me. She explodes with gratitude. There's something, there's something very intriguing and puzzling about Mary's faith. And those who have studied it, those who have come to understand God the way Mary does, have been transformed. One author says, numerous authors say, even one in the Washington Post said, this is a revolutionary passage. 
Mary becomes mercifully mighty or one mighty in mercy. How did she come to that faith? Well, look with me at the passage. We'll see the answer. Verses 46 to 55, Mary, upon receiving this news that Jesus was going to be born of her, conceived by the Holy Spirit, says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might behold beautifully transformative things in this passage of your word. O Lord, enable us to see you so clearly that we become the exuberant, mighty workers of mercy that we see in Mary. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen. A few years ago, a An opinion writer for the Washington Post named D.L. Mayfield said he he, he read the Magnificat and this hymn of Mary's and it struck him for the first time that these are really revolutionary words. Why haven't more people made more of this, he thought. This could turn the world upside down. It certainly would make Christians very different. So he decided to survey his readers. It wasn't a scientific survey, but it was on TikTok. 1,100 of his readers responded to his survey. His question was just this. What do you think about the Magnificat? 28% of evangelicals said we've never heard of it. 43% said their churches never read it and they've never heard it discussed. 21% said they've encountered it a few times and only 8% said we read the Magnificat, Mary's hymn, every year. Only 8% of those who say to characterize us is to characterize us as an evangelical, one for whom the gospel of Jesus Christ is at the center. Only 8% of those said, we read this every year. Over half, nearly three quarters of them say, "Mm, never heard of it or heard it discussed or really don't think much of it. This author, presumably an evangelical himself or at least uh, respectful of it, said, maybe that is our problem. 
Maybe our witness is not more contagious, not more convincing, not more revolutionary because we do not meditate enough on the same God who exploded with joy out of Mary and made her courageous against the world she was a part of. Now, what's the secret? It's not, it's not a secret. It is that Mary was convinced that God is merciful and God is mighty. That he's mighty in his mercy, that his mercy is mighty. And she became a mighty, merciful person in response by means of the attributes of God she meditated on and had known from her youth. Well, let's see how it comes out in the passage. In verses 46 to 49, here, Mary praises God for his mercy, his mercy to the expecting, his mercy to the searcher. Now, it is strange, isn't it, that there's no wrestling with, no, no questioning of how could this, why, why would you choose me? How could this possibly happen? It seemed instinctive, seemed to be no surprise to her that this is exactly the kind of God who would come into her womb. This is the kind of God who would come into her earth. It's one she had always known to be merciful. How would she know that? Here's a woman, after all, who's a, who's a teenager. She's in, an, she's, she's in a minority group. She's in an oppressed people group, the Jews. She's overly taxed. Her world around her despises her as a woman. Even the religious leaders who have, have warped the faith that was handed down by, through the Bible, warped the faith such that the priests... And the scribes and the Pharisees would say, I thank you, God, that you haven't made me a a Gentile or a woman. This woman's surrounded by this kind of oppression and neglect and disdain, who denied an education. This woman somehow knew her Bible. She knew the true message of the faith that's woven through the scriptures, the good news of the one true God who revealed himself as merciful. He had the name that he preferred to go by. It was mercy. You know how when you come up to a doctor's office or something and, you, and they're asked, what is your given name? And you say, it's Mayreen. You whisper, Mayreen. But please call me Kitty. Or my name is Aloysius, but call me Skip. What name is given to you? What name do you wish to be called by? God has a name. He's Yahweh. He's Jehovah. But call me mercy. Moses asked that question. Who are you? What is your glory? Who is it? What, is, what are you at the core of your being? I am mercy. It's revealed that way over and over and over again. Mercy. And Mary knew it. Mary was not surprised that God would demonstrate himself to be merciful. She was searching. She knew the scriptures. She knew that no matter what happened in history, what happened in her personal life, what setbacks, what evil she encountered, what uh, disappointments she encountered, she knew that, 
that God was only mercy. Those evils may have come by the hand of men or by oppressors, but her God was merciful. He is merciful to those who expect him to be merciful. That's who he is. He is revealed as mercy to the God-fearer, verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Well, you say, you've just been talking about he is mercy. You've urged us to believe that God is love in the core of his being. And now you're talking about, now that's the real God, I know you say, one that you should be afraid of, but that's not what the word means. To fear God is not to be afraid of him unless you're, you're taking him on. To fear him is to prioritize him above all things, is to make him first. It is to realize that he is first and he is sovereign over all things. It is as and then when you recognize that God is supreme and that he is supremely merciful, then like Mary, my soul, my spirit, everything in me rejoices that you are God. When you rejoice that God is supreme, then you know him to be merciful. Where did she learn that? Maybe the clue is in the second part of verse 50, from generation to generation. Her parents, her grandparents, those covenantal line ahead of her who knew this God, the God of mercy, the God of compassion and grace, they passed that on to her. God must be first in my life because only he is merciful. Only he relieves of shame. Can you imagine the shame she could have been tempted to? I'm a woman who's pregnant out of wedlock. But shame is not something God traffics in. God doesn't give us shame. Shame is an invasion of his creation through the evil one. Because shame is who you think you are relative to other people's evaluation. Shame is, shame is what other people make up that you should be. You should have this kind of job. You should have this kind of education. You should have this kind of body type. You should have this kind of money. You should vacation in this way. You should look that way. And when you don't measure up to their, their expectations, which are constantly shifting and changing every day, then you can live in shame. God doesn't traffic in shame. God says, are you guilty? Did you sin? Yes, Lord, I sinned. Confess it. I forgive it. I put it under the blood of Jesus. Now let's get on with it. Mary has no hint of shame. She's known from generation to generation that when you, when you only regard what God thinks of you, everybody else's opinions pass away. By the way, I think she would have known that from Joseph. In a world where men had looked down on her and so forth, she didn't experience that from Joseph. Joseph exercise his protective love for her, was willing to cover her and not expose her. Then uh, mercy is, is also for the helpless. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Helplessness is... To, to, be, to be helpless is to be just in the place where God delights to provide. Helpless really is a, 
as a, as a man-made word. If God is your father, he says, fear not, little flock. Your heavenly father knows you have a need of all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God. Everything that you need will be added to you. So helpless is a man-made word. When we feel like we're helpless, what are we saying? As I'm out of the resources that I think I should have for myself. I don't have the resources I think I should generate in my mind to face this challenging situation. I don't have the money that the world tells me I need to make this thing happen. I don't have the regard. I don't have the self-esteem. I don't have the right gifts. I don't have. But God says, my grace is made powerful in your weakness. I'll provide all your needs. You have no need ever to worry. But where I delight, your God says, where I delight in working is when all the odds are against you. And there I can provide for you. He's going to feed me when I'm hungry. But the rich, the one who says, I don't need anything, I'm going to send him or her away empty. God is merciful for the helpless. Listen. If you think that you have what you need and you're making it just fine through life and your own resources, beware. God's about to drop a boulder in your life. Not because he hates you, but because it's, it's the worst thing in the world for you to let you go on living in that delusion. So if you think that, that your money is to spend on yourself, he's about to separate you from your money or your money from you. If you think that your influence, if you think that your, your, your power, your strengths are to, to use to impress people or just for your family, just he's about to separate you from it. One way or the other. Not because he hates you. But because he made all of those gifts he gives to you to work in a way of support. Well, I'm getting way ahead of myself. I got to finish this point first. The last one is God's mercy is for the wanderers. Where do I get that <clears throat> in verses 54 and 55? He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Where do I get the wanderers? I get it from these two names. Israel is otherwise known as Jacob. And his grandfather's name is Abraham. The story of the Bible from chapter 12 of Genesis to the end of Revelation is all about God pursuing people like Abraham and Jacob. I mean, just think about all the history that's jammed into Genesis 1 through 11. Thousands of years. People think they know how to measure that, but they've never been successful. There's just, just a whole lot of history. Thousands of years jammed in to creation up to the Tower of Babel. And then from the call of Abraham on to Revelation. The rest of history is God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people. Not an easy task for God. I'm going to be the God of Abraham and Jacob, of all people. And of all people, I'm going to make people like Abraham and Jacob my people. If you don't know your Bible very well, that's okay. If you don't know your Bible very well, you might think, hey, aren't those the superstars of the Bible, Abraham and Jacob? Uh, 
they're the superstars of God's grace, but Abraham nor Jacob are nothing to write home about. Abraham gets called while he's out howling at the moon and his pagan gods, and he gets called to go uh, to a new land, and he has so much stuff with him, he's schlepping it across the desert. He gets bogged down about halfway, and God has to come and call him again. And then on the way, he's lying about his, his wife is so beautiful, he's afraid he's going to get beaten up or killed for her, and so he just lies about her twice. And God tells him he's going to be the father of a covenant nation. He said, well, that's too hard to believe. What I'll do is I'll uh, bring in another woman. She'll be a surrogate mom, and then I'll, I'll manipulate it this way. And then he mistreats that child. Abraham, not a paragon of faithfulness. And Jacob, uh, Jacob's very name meant swindler. He's, 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 he's conniving and thieving every which way he can. And these are the ones God said, those are my boys, Abraham and Jacob. I don't want to be known. I want to be known as Abraham and Jacob's father. And we're just like them. I will be their God. I know it's crazy, but I will be their God. And they will be my people. He shows mercy to the unworthy. Shows mercy to the unworthy. So the way God gets his glory. I read this week about a woman named, <clears throat> and I may mispronounce her name, Tanua Gali. She lives in Kathmandu, capital of Nepal, and she's, she's a business owner. She owns a salon, and she's an evangelist. She, she goes around her city sharing Christ. One day she said she was walking down one of the city streets and she saw a woman just in passing and she said to that woman, she looked her in the eye and she said, you are very beautiful. And the woman dissolved into tears. So she stopped and said, I, I'm sorry, did I offend you? Did I say the wrong thing? Why, did, why are you responding that way? And she said, this, this morning, my husband beat me again. And told me again, I'm the worst human being on the planet. And you told me I'm beautiful. She said, not only did I tell you you're beautiful, God says you're beautiful. You're made in his image. And, and he sent Jesus to die for you. He can make you even more beautiful. That's what mercy is. It's a holy, infinite, other God who says by his gift of Jesus Christ, you are beautiful. I've come to make you even more so in conformity to my son, regardless of the sinner you are, how unworthy you've made yourself to be. This is the mercy I've chosen to expend to you at infinite cost to myself. And then Mary goes on to say, but it's not just his mercy. That's beautiful that he, that he can that he can say those things, but he's actually powerful enough to accomplish them. That his might is seen in his mercy. Yes, his might will be demonstrated, and it is in, in small ways throughout history in his judgment. It will certainly be seen, his might will certainly be seen at the great day on all those who have refused to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. His might will come down in judgment on them. But here, what the only thing that Mary can see is his might 
is demonstrated in his mercy. His might is merciful. And his might transforms me. This is a dangerous passage. Especially when it's held by and uh, revered by someone whom the devil wants to keep in suppression. Or whom devilish administrations want to keep in, in suppression. It has an interesting history the way it's been used or abused. For instance, in, <clears throat> when India was, when the people were trying to find their independence from Great Britain, Archbishop William Temple, the Anglican Church, forbade his priests of reading the Magnificat in public because he was afraid it would give them notions of rebellion. In Guatemala in the 1980s, an oppressive Marxist government said, don't let anybody read, or an oppressive government, they not let no one read this lest they get ideas of rebellion and independence. The Plaza de Mayo mothers uh, in, um, in Argentina in the late 70s during the dirty war, it's another war for out of, of, of a pogrom against those who were rising up against a dictator. These mothers, the Plaza de Mayo mothers had lost children in that war. And so they printed posters with the Magnificat on it. They spread it all around the city. And that dictator came down on them, made it illegal. Don't ever display such a thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just before the before he was killed himself for taking on Hitler, said the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn Advent has ever known. What, what are they seeing in this passage? What is Mary saying? This teenage girl recognizes that God humbles the proud. And God exalts the humble. That's the message. That's the the pattern of history. God repeats over and over again. To live on the right side of history is to live with God on the side of humility. To live on the right side of humility of God, a right side of history, is to serve alongside God. Reaching out with whatever gifts he's given to you. To spread his gospel, to spread works of mercy, to declare to those who are most vulnerable, Jesus Christ came to make all things right, to bring shalom. Look look how she says in verse 49, 52, 53, he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Mary, don't you know what you're talking about? Caesar Augustus is the emperor and he is identified as the son of God. He has that much power. And Herod, if King Herod hears you saying this, Mary, you will certainly be killed. He's built a fortress that is impregnable. He's built a fortress that is one of the wonders of the world. 
Mary, how can you say that? Because Mary knew that someday nobody would know who Caesar was. And the Roman Empire, what was that? And Herod's fortress, oh yeah, that's a nice tourist attraction. But Mary, generations continue to call her blessed. She was on the right side of history. God brings down the proud, exalts the humble. And if he does, we must be in the place where the humble are. We must humble ourselves. We must adopt his priority for showing mercy to those in greatest need. That's the story of Christianity. I read recently in <clears throat> Philip Yancey's, an excerpt from Philip Yancey's book. He's one of my favorite authors, the author of Amazing Grace 25 years ago. What's so amazing about Grace uh, 25 years ago? More recently, a memoir, or Where the Light Fell, talking about his own upbringing, how dark and how neglectful and painful and abusive it was. And yet he said, the light of the gospel fell into my darkness and brought me into his light. And now as an older man, he is reflecting on his ministry of the gospel worldwide. And he said, I've visited 90 countries to share the gospel. And wherever I go, where Christians have been and where they've been missionaries, you see a string of orphanages and a string of clinics and hospitals and education places and people fighting sex trafficking and digging wells and feeding the hungry. And when people in those places define what a Christian is, they say, it's somebody who when I'm sick, they make me well. And when I'm hungry, they give me food. Mary said, this is what Christ has come to do. He's come to put us back together. He's become like us soul and body in order to put souls and bodies and places back together again for the praise of his glorious grace. And if you want to be on the winning side, that's where you'll be involved. That's where your money, that's where your your. Your, your time, that's where your mindset will be. It's, it's assured victory. You see how the whole passage ends. It's, notice the tense of these verbs. He has shown strength, verse 51. He has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He's exalted those of humblest things. He's filled the hungry. He sent away the rich. He has helped his servant Israel. Greek students in Memphis City Seminary, those are aorist verbs. Those are, those are futuristic aorist verbs. That means hey, she's speaking in Hebrew, but is capturing that sense, our Aramaic. She's, she's capturing, the, he's, they're capturing that sense of something that is so sure to happen in the future. It's as if it has already occurred. I know, she said, I've always known that God, my merciful and mighty king, reigns supreme and will conquer all evil with his mercy and might. He has done it now in the bringing of Jesus and now the rest of history will be but the mop-up operation. He will be the savior, redeemer, 
all in all. Which side do you want to be on? <clears throat> the, um, the hymn we're about to sing, Good Christian Men Rejoice. Good Christian people rejoice. Written by two ministers, or at least one, it's authored by one and translated by another. Uh, who gave themselves, like Mary, to a God who was mighty in his mercy. Heinrich Suso was the German who originally wrote the poem in the 1300s, born of German nobility. He had an easy path ahead of him. All he had to do was just exist continued getting the fine education he did, live in all the fineries, never had to work, never had to do anything really. He could just live off the fat of the land. Only 2 to 3% of the, the people, the population in the day controlled all the wealth. Everybody else was in deprivation. Suso, because Christ had taken heart, part, a control of his heart said, this is not right. I need to serve those whom Jesus came to serve. And so he became a minister. He organized a society to, to go and help people who, were, who needed food, who needed gainful employment, who, who needed uh, health care. He went and found them. And that, that society was so threatening. That work was so threatening to the religious powers of the day who were beholden to the government authorities of the day that they tried him as a heretic and ultimately banished him from Germany. He kept on preaching. He wrote a book called The Little Book of Truth and another one, A Little Book of Eternal Wisdom, which was, which was to say, here is really good news. God became man. He became poor that we might become rich, become rich. He, he came to restore us to a relationship with God through Christ and also to restore us to one another and, and to help us. Everybody asked him, how do you have such joy in preaching? He said, I am maintained by joy every waking hour and even through the night. One night he had a dream so vivid, he woke up the next day and he said, I heard the angel singing this song. And he wrote down the words and the tune at the time. Good Christian men rejoice. Many years later, John Mason Neal, an Anglican priest, I was serving in the churches at the time in the church when there was a similar thing. There were the haves and the have-nots and the haves were to stay the haves and the have-nots were to stay the have-nots. He said, no, the gospel is to go to all people. And, and Jesus is going to find the most vulnerable and he's going, to, he's going to search for them. He's going to find help for them. He's going to advocate for them. The church leaders at the time accused him of the same thing of Suso, what, what people today would call a social gospel. You're preaching the social gospel. You're not preaching Jesus anymore because you're saying Jesus is good for those who were in need. So they rejected him, but he kept on ministering. 
he, he, he kept on ministering to the poor. In the name of Jesus, he didn't call the gospel something else. In the name of Jesus, he told them how to be reconciled to God and he told them how to be reconciled to others and sought to improve their lives. The church, the government leaders hated him so much. They one time went to a funeral where he was, he was uh, celebrating the funeral of one of his, the sisters who was helping him and they mauled him and then they tried to stone him and then they threatened to burn his house down. John Mason, Neil didn't quit. He heard about Suzo. He got a hold of Suzo's hymn and he translated into English. People. Just like they hated Suzo's hymn, they hated Neil's hymn, but it's become one of the most popular hymns of Christmas just because this is the way God does things. He turns the powerful on their head. And he says, I came to bring good news to those who need it most. To you, estranged from God in your sin, yes, he says, I am mercy. And when you come to him and see him for who he is, you go looking for others who also need mercy. It's just that simple, but revolutionary. May God make us such people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you in this, in this world characterized by so much ugliness. We thank you that the gospel is so much more beautiful. And yet the devil and his forces are so threatened by it, they try to extinguish it. We pray that we would be all the more resolved in this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for all of life. That no matter what persecution might come our way, we would spread it here and abroad. Thank you for being our merciful high priest. Thank you for being the mighty God, the everlasting father. Bring us peace our prince. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.